Good morning to everyone listening. My name is Eliana Svilik. Welcome to the 10th episode of my podcast, Capital Connections. On this podcast, we are going to explore the intersection between economics, politics, and everyday life. We are going to try to understand why the flow of money between countries and companies matters. This podcast is an educational initiative with the goal of educating my peers, high school students, on the global economic political events that are so relevant to our lives, but schools often neglect to teach fully. In this episode, we are going to examine the war in Ukraine with the help of Dr. Robert Person, an Associate Professor of International Relations at United States Military Academy in West Point, New York. Dr. Person teaches classes in Russian and post-Soviet politics, international relations, and comparative politics. He is also the Director of Curriculum for West Point's International Affairs Program, as well as the primary course in international relations that West Point cadets take in their third year. Dr. Person has published an immense amount of research on the foreign and domestic politics of former Soviet states, including Russia. He is currently working on a book project about Russian grand strategy in the 21st century. In addition, Dr. Person is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a resident fellow at West Point's Modern War Institute. Dr. Person has a PhD in political science from Yale University and completed his MA in Russian, East European, and Eurasian studies at Stanford University. This is the second half of his interview. The first half can be found in episode 9. Before we begin, I want to recap the background that I shared with you all in episode 9. In the post-Soviet era, Ukrainian politics have been driven by one question. Should Ukraine ally with Russia or the West? And for the first decade, Ukraine focused on rebuilding and maintained close ties with Moscow. However, in 2004, pro-Western candidate and former Prime Minister Viktor Yushchenko won the presidential election, alarming Putin and ultimately leading to Putin's annexation of Crimea in April 2014. In many ways, today's current conflict is a continuation of that war. In 2021, Russia began moving troops and weaponry to the Ukrainian border. The alarm was raised by Ukraine's Western allies as early as April of 2021. On February 24, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, to jump right into the interview, to pivot a little bit back to the war in Ukraine, Clearly, the war is not going as well as Putin planned. How would you describe Putin's initial strategy heading into the invasion? And what were his initial assumptions? Yeah, no, he's definitely miscalculated here, which doesn't mean that Ukraine is necessarily going to win. But this is not the war that that Putin expected to fight. In terms of what he was trying to achieve, you know, I'll take it back to, to those grand strategic objectives that I spoke about earlier. And, and you know, remember, um, I said sort of the third one was to establish that privileged and exclusive sphere of influence in the post-Soviet region. So again, it, it's been clear for many, many years that, you know, Putin believes that the geopolitical orientation of Ukraine is a fundamental red line national security interest of Russia. And I think on several occasions, sort of when, when Russia was sort of faced with the possibility that they were losing Ukraine to the West, perhaps once and for all, 
you know, that that has sort of induced some of this panic uh, and and this sort of compulsion to to intervene. And so I think, you know, Putin had sort of finally concluded that, you know, after eight years of of this simmering civil war in eastern Ukraine that they'd been um, supporting about, you know, eight years of, of all of these, you know, sort of hybrid cyber informational efforts to try to destabilize and, and perhaps undermine the, the democratically elected government in Ukraine. I think Putin finally decided that, uh, that he was sick of waiting and that the only way to sort of settle the Ukrainian problem once and for all in Moscow's favor uh, was to go in and install a pro-Russian government in Kiev um, that would basically do Moscow's bidding, you know, install a, a puppet government. And so, you know, I think he expected that they could sort of sweep in very quickly. They could reach Kiev, the capital, uh, you know, in in a matter of days, uh, encircle it and either force Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, to relinquish power or perhaps, you know, I don't know, remove him by force, uh, arrest him or worse and install, you know, this this government um, in in its place. Obviously, that hasn't happened. And, you know, their initial military tactics, as I understand them, sort of, you know, kind of illustrated that, that they thought that they could do this sort of very easily and quickly and efficiently. And, and a lot of their logistics don't seem to have been prepared to handle the kind of long, slow, hard slog that they're now facing. Uh, and so I, I think that sort of accounts for perhaps some of that earlier, earlier strategy that went so poorly, but they are now realizing that they are settling in for a very long, hard, and brutal fight. And unfortunately, I think they are now starting to resort to what has been a more typical form of Russian warfare, which is to, to target civilian populations and to just grind them to dust. Um, this is what they did in, in Chechnya, a breakaway region in, in southern Russia, you know, a couple decades ago. Uh, this is essentially what they did in Syria when they intervened in the Syrian civil war on behalf of, you know, the Syrian dictator. And, and so, you know, they haven't lost their will to fight uh, yet. It'll be slow and it'll be incredibly destructive. And, and unfortunately, it's Ukraine and the Ukrainian people that, that are going to pay the, the, the heaviest cost. Thank you for that, um, albeit sad, explanation. So how would you describe Ukraine's political and social evolution after the fall of the Soviet Union? Oh, good question. And, and again, a complicated one. So, you know, for, for probably the first decade, so Soviet Union collapses in 1991. And it's interesting just to, to note the history of kind of how that happens. So it's actually the, the presidents of the Russian Republic, who was Boris Yeltsin, and the president of the Belarusian Soviet Republic and the president of the Ukrainian Soviet Republic that get together at a hunting lodge in the woods in late 1991 it's clear that sort of the Soviet Union, you know, the, the party is over. And so they basically get together and they sort of decide, listen, our three republics were the three founding 
republics of the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, when the Soviet Union was sort of created, you know, back in, in the early 20s after the Russian Revolution of 1917, you know, they're kind of the founding members. And so they basically say, listen, we brought it into this world and, and, and we're going to take it out. And so they, they sign this treaty uh, dissolving the Soviet Union. Then they tell Gorbachev that that's what they've done. And, you know, on December 20. Sixth, there's an, there, there are now 15 independent countries where, where there used to be the Soviet Union. So the first decade of post-Soviet life in Ukraine, as it was in most of the post-Soviet countries, was really, really hard. They experienced an economic collapse that's on a scale far larger than anything we've ever seen in our country, far more severe than the Great Depression. And so you know, it's really traumatic. It's life is hard, uh, but they managed to, to, you know, soldier through and, and, and get on. The political system at that time is a little bit of a basket case. You know, again, they're, they're holding sort of democratic elections, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of corruption. The, you know, the leadership is sort of more uh, oriented towards, towards Russia, but, you know, they maintain their independence and, and autonomy. In 2004, there's a big presidential election coming up, and it and and the, sort of the main candidates are you know are running either as sort of the pro-Russian candidate. You know, we believe that we need to sort of be more oriented towards uh, towards Russia against the the sort of more pro-Western candidates, and 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 they're the ones that you know, that want Ukraine to sort of join the West, want Ukraine to join the EU, maybe even NATO. And so in this presidential election, there is, there, there's multiple rounds of, of voting. I, I won't bore you with, with kind of how that all works. But the short of it is, in, one, in, in the last round of voting, all of the exit polls show that the pro-Western candidates have won the election. But surprise, surprise, when the official results are released, they show that the pro-Russian candidate has won. And we know that there was really heavy Russian influence. We know that the incumbent, Leonid Kuchma, who, who was leaving power, you know, wanted to hand over power to the pro-Russian successor. And so this you know, clear instance of, of really bad electoral fraud basically, you know, sets off sort of the Ukrainian public and they all pour into the streets in protest. It's what became known as the Orange Revolution because the pro-Western candidates, the, the color of their campaign was, was the color orange. And they protest and protest and protest until basically they, everyone agrees to hold the elections again. And when they do, you know, they're, they're held freely, they're held fairly, and the pro-Western candidate uh, wins. And so that's kind of the first moment, I think, when Putin is sort of faced with this, you know, oh, dear moment and, and this possibility that, oh, my gosh, we, we could be losing Ukraine. Interestingly enough, that pro-Russian candidate who lost in 2005, he hires a, an American political image consultant. He sort of revives his image. He, he you know, he, he starts wearing, you know, tailored Italian suits, redoes his hairdo, looks much more like a, you know, kind of a modern Western politician. He, he, he sort of changes the way he talks, less like a sort of an Eastern Ukrainian gangster. Um, and he actually manages to win 
the Ukrainian presidential election in 2010. Um, and, and he does he does so sort of, you know, democratically, they're, they're, they're free and fair elections. The Orange Coalition, you know, had lost a lot of popularity because the economy sort of continued to suffer. So, so now, as of 2010, you have Viktor Yanukovych is his name. He's, the, he's sort of the, the pro-Russian uh, leader of Ukraine. Now you have him in power. And he does sort of turn back to Moscow, but he also still maintains kind of this independent streak. Um, he doesn't completely, you know, roll over to, to the Kremlin's wishes. Um, and he actually starts negotiating an agreement with the European Union. It's called an association agreement. And basically, this is kind of seen as the first step towards a country joining the European Union. It's not a guarantee that, that you know, that you're going to get into the club, but it's sort of an early agreement to start sort of bringing Ukraine's kind of laws and practices in line with EU standards. Again, Russia finds this unacceptable because if, God forbid, Ukraine joins the European Union, then, then they will not be part of, of Russia's orbit anymore. And so Putin puts tremendous pressure on Yanukovych in late 2013, as they're getting close to finalizing this agreement and signing it. Putin puts tremendous pressure on Yanukovych to walk away from the deal. And he does. He announces that he's going to stop, stop negotiations with the European Union. He, he really doesn't have much of a choice. Ukraine sort of was in a bad financial situation. Putin offered a, a lot of financial assistance in order to, uh, to make this decision. But again, that decision to turn away from Europe and back towards Russia is what brings out, you know, first thousands and then eventually millions of Ukrainians uh, into the streets protesting in, in what then became known as the Euromaidan revolution or the revolution of dignity. And that then sort of culminates in February of 2014 Yanukovych, uh, you know, fears for his life. He flees Ukraine in the dead of night. He, he flees to Russia. And that basically starts sort of the current era of, uh, of the pro-Western Ukraine, you know, pro-Western sort of post-Maidan Ukrainian government. And that's the moment at which then Putin takes the initiative, seizes Crimea, starts the war in Eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region, and really seems to get um, really quite obsessive about, uh, about not just Ukrainians' political orientation, but, but he also seems to be really emotional about it. And, and, you know, there's sort of this hatred when he speaks. And so, again, I think 2014 is this fundamental turning point where, again, Russia sort of probably realizes that they've, they've perhaps lost Ukraine for the last time. And that's where we start seeing these more and more extreme measures you know, to try the, to, to sort of jerk them back in, into the orbit. So that was a really long answer. But, uh, you know, like I said, it's all pretty complicated over there. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of history in about 10 minutes. Thank you. So how surprised are you then by Ukraine's response to the Russian invasion? I will be the first to admit that I, I am surprised. I think that I and a lot of my colleagues and, and, and experts and, and people, you know, who, who know this stuff all underestimated Ukraine. 
And I think one of the things that we have to do sort of as scholars and analysts is sort of be open about our, our shortcomings. And, you know, when maybe when the dust settles, sort of go back and ask ourselves, okay, why did we miss the signs? Why did we misjudge both Ukraine and Russia in terms of sort of their military performance? And I haven't done that yet. So, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to sort of figure out sort of where, you know, where that gap came from. But what we've seen, so, you know, ultimately on some level, you know, you can boil down sort of military success to some interaction between capabilities and resolve. Um, and, and that's obviously sort of, you know, even simplifying, you know, a lot of complex things. But, you know, we think about capabilities as, you know, what kind of weapons do you have? Uh, what kind of logistical support do you have? How, what kind of manpower do you have? You know, how many soldiers do you have in your army? But capabilities are also about skill. You know, how good are you at fighting? And, and you know, what's the state of your military technology? But since the dawn of time, you know, people have been fighting wars since, you know, since the beginning. Uh, we know that it's not just about sort of, you know, your raw numbers. It's not just about those capabilities. There's also this sort of intangible and hard to measure component of resolve and sort of the will to fight. And under certain circumstances, you know, populations have shown incredible tenacity to fight, even when they are so grossly outmatched by superior military forces. And sometimes that's enough to make the difference. You know, sometimes they are willing to, uh, to fight much longer and much harder than a better equipped adversary and, and, and they can sort of outlast. And I think that's what, you know, what the Ukrainians are doing. So they have become a much more capable fighting force over the last eight years. We, the United States and our NATO allies have been providing a lot of training to Ukraine's military in the last eight years. We have done a lot of sort of exchanges, you know, with their officers and, and, and their leadership to, to help sort of modernize kind of their approach uh, to, to armed forces. And of course, we have been increasingly supplying them with modern weaponry, uh, which certainly helps on the capability side. So they have been making really significant improvements on their capabilities. They've also been fighting a war for the last eight years. You know, all of that fighting in the trenches of Eastern Ukraine uh, against sort of the, the insurgency in the Donbass, again, that, that is, uh, that's training them. That is giving them a lot of combat experience that we're now seeing translated into successes. But the real sort of powerful unknown, you know, entity or quantity that, that I think people perhaps undervalued in the lead up to this conflict was, you know, the willingness of not just the Ukrainian army, but the Ukrainian people, the whole nation to resist this invasion. And, you know, we are seeing in a country that has, again, this really sort of complex and at times divided history over language and ethnicity and nationality and the whole question of, you know, should we be with the West or should we be with Russia? What this invasion has done is unified the Ukrainian people in a way that we've never seen before. Um, and now they're fighting for their homeland. They're fighting for their families. 
and and they're fighting for for their freedom both you know freedom from domination by russia and freedom internally to continue being a, a democratic nation and that's proving to be a very potent force now whether that is going to be powerful enough again to defeat a russian military that though they have not fought with the same will and determination over the last two weeks uh, though they have been beset by a lot of uh, logistical problems and sort of equipment failures. I don't know if you've seen some of the videos of Ukrainian farmers that are towing Russian tank, broken down Russian tanks with their tractors. There, there's been a lot of those flying around. But again, at the end of the day, the Russian uh, the the Russian army, in terms of just its its size, its weaponry, its capabilities, are so overwhelmingly powerful. Uh, that they can still continue to do a lot of damage to Ukraine and, you know, and sooner or later potentially could, could just, you know, break Ukrainians will, but, you know, we're not there yet. Neither side is yet ready to, to truly back down or, or surrender uh, or even sort of look for, well, I, 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 sh I, I should sort of say that Russia, Russia is definitely not ready to look for off ramps. They're not looking to settle uh, or to find a, a peaceful sort of exit uh, from this conflict yet. So it's going to keep burning for a while. Got it. So how do you foresee this war ending for Ukraine? Is there any scenario where it would end positively? That's such a tough question. Partly because, again, we're not very good about predicting the future. And partly because the answer that that i think my brain is telling me really conflicts with what my heart wants you know i want to see a ukraine that is whole free and at peace that is free to determine their course in the world their place in the world and and to you know sort of meet all of their all of their potential you know i i lived in ukraine um, i've actually li I've, I've lived in both countries um, i have friends in both countries i i love both countries and, and their and their cultures. And, and so, you know, I want to see that free sort of European Ukraine. But I think what I see ahead of us is a long, slow, incredibly destructive war that will continue to grind down Ukraine's cities, and, and these are beautiful old cities uh, that are now coming under indiscriminate Russian attack. And so just the physical destruction in Ukraine is, is mind-boggling, but I also know that the Ukrainian people will resist, and they will continue to fight a long and hard insurgency for as long as Russian forces are in their country. And this is where Putin has, has really miscalculated, which with such devastating results. You know, he thought that he could sweep in and install a pro-Russian government in Ukraine. And maybe he even thought that he could sort of do it quickly and easily and withdraw, you know, maybe leave a couple of sort of Russian units there to, to sort of enforce. But it's clear now that the Ukrainian people will never accept Russian military forces on their territory, and they will never accept a government that is, is loyal to the Kremlin and not to the Ukrainian people. And so I think this conflict 
burns on in in some form or another uh, for as far as I can see, because I think, again, the only the only thing that I think forces Putin to stand down and withdraw at this point is if there are hundreds of thousands of Russians protesting in the streets of Moscow, St. Petersburg, and other cities. I think that's the only force that can really sway him. And, and it would be a calculation of his own political survival, you know, to, to make that calculation. But, but until we sort of reach that point, again, I don't think he'll be inclined to back down. And I don't think that the Ukrainian people or their government or their military will be inclined just to sort of throw their arms up and say, okay, yeah, we're done. Right. So how would you characterize the response from the West and NATO allies to the Russian invasion? And do you think that the response has been sufficient? Yeah, so I should probably point out at this point that everything that I'm saying here today, these are my personal views, um, not the the official policy or position of Department of Defense or United States government that employs me. But, you know, President Biden and our NATO allies are sort of walking a fine line. It's a really tough balance because on the one hand, you know, we do believe that Ukraine is, uh, is, is a country worth supporting. And, and, and we believe, I, I think rightly, that it's in our interest uh, to support Ukraine and to resist Russian aggression. Um, you know, if, if Russia is allowed to just sort of roll through, you know, with tanks to, to achieve whatever they want, which is really a principle that, that again, we kind of thought that the Second World War solved that, you know, that everybody agreed that, that this is not what we do. So to sort of reopen those sort of those older sort of principles that, that might makes right, I think is, is worth standing up to. But at the same time, there is a reluctance uh, or at least a caution because the prospect of direct military engagement, aka fighting between United States forces or NATO forces and the Russian military is pretty scary to think about because you know, then we would be in essentially a hot war between the United States or NATO and Russia. And you know, we spent the entire Cold War very carefully trying to avoid, that scenario because of the fear that such a conflict wouldn't remain one of just bullets and bombs and tanks for long, um, that it could escalate to the use of nuclear weapons. And and that's something that nobody wants to see happen. And so, you know, right now the administration is really kind of having to carefully calculate and calibrate how much support can we give to Ukraine without really sort of risking a, a Russian response that, that could escalate and, and sort of ensnare us in a, in a direct fighting war. So this is why President Biden has made it clear, um, as, as I think was wise to do, that, listen, I'm sorry, but you know, American soldiers are not going to fight in Ukraine. Similarly, you've probably heard of this idea of a no-fly zone. The Ukrainians have been calling for a no-fly no zone 
for the last couple of weeks. And, uh, and the idea is that, okay, we declare Ukrainian you know, airspace off limits uh, and therefore sort of the Russian Air Force can't, um, you know, can't fly bombing missions, attack missions you know, with, with their Air Force. Well, you have to enforce that. You, know, you, have to be able to will, you, you have to be willing to defend that. And that means, again, American or NATO aircraft in the skies over Ukraine willing to shoot down Russian planes that violate the no-fly zone, and 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 so there's there's your hot war scenario, and so that's why uh, the no-fly zone again really hasn't gotten any traction in in Washington because it it could be very escalatory, and so what we have left, and and I think there is sort of room to expand on this is continuing to provide weaponry to the Ukrainians, um, and specifically defensive weaponry is what they really need, um, anti-tank weapons, but anti-aircraft weapons as well, so that they can actually defend. It's, it's kind of like, you know, we, we can potentially help them sort of create their own no-fly zone um, by giving them the stuff that'll allow them to, to shoot down Russian aircraft. And so that's something that we are doing, but, but probably could do more of. Um, and then, you know, sort of the the uh, the subject for what sounds like your next episode is the economic war that that we have sort of launched uh, against Russia and, you know, have had some really devastating effects uh, so far or significant effects, I, I would say, on the Russian economy. There's a few more things that that we could be doing and, you know, may see some some additional measures in the coming days and, and weeks. So I think on whole, um, it's been probably the right policy response. Uh, even though it's not entirely what what the Ukrainians wish, you know, wish we were doing for them. Okay, thank you so much. That was actually my last question. So thank you. Thank you so much. Sure, it was my pleasure. I really, uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you to everyone who listened, and I hope to see you on my next episode.